You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program and brings you news from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 30th of June for the listening week that begins the 1st of July. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week's offerings include some discussions about reparations, recent Supreme Court actions, news of a new museum in Charleston, and other current events. Opening with this from thegrio.com, a recent death. This was posted June 30th from Associated Press. Tuskegee Airman Raymond Kasogno dies at 102. Kasogno graduated from the Tuskegee program and received his pilot wings in 1943. He returned to Haiti and flew missions for his country, patrolling for submarines. Raymond Kaskognal, a Haitian pilot and a member of the Tuskegee Airmen, the famed group of black military aviators during World War II, has died. He was 102. Kaskognal died June 24th at his home in Florida, according to his daughter, Dominique Kaskognal Bayochino. Casagnal was one of three Haitian servicemen initially selected to join an experimental program in Tuskegee, Alabama, for black soldiers seeking to train as pilots after the Army Air Corps was forced to admit black Americans. The Haitian serviceman wrote in his memoir that he was shocked by the prejudice he encountered in the American South and opted to stay close to the training field. During that time, color prejudice was in full swing, and even the church did not escape segregation. Whites in the front, blacks in the back. Nevertheless, the choir members were blacks, and the soprano was applauded at the end of Mass. This is why I was careful not to frequent places where I could be humiliated, he wrote in his Memoirs d'un Révolutionnaire. Forgive my mispronunciation of the French. Casagnol graduated from the Tuskegee program and received his pilot wings on July 28, 1943. He returned to Haiti and flew missions for his country. A revolutionary who opposed the brutal Duvalier dictatorship, Casagnol later immigrated to the United States in 1960s to keep his family safe. I fought all the dictate. Pardon me, I fought all the dictators, he told the Orlando Sentinel in 2000, speaking of his service during and after World War II. Balachino said her father was courageous and dedicated to his family and the cause of Haiti. He never gave up. He never gave up. He was always a fighter, she said. More than 900 men trained at Tuskegee from 1940 to 1946. The Tuskegee Airmen have been the subject of books, movies, and documentaries highlighting their courage in the air and the discrimination they faced in the United States while fighting for freedom abroad. 
Next, turning to theroot.com for some recent election news. Mom of Buffalo shooting survivor is victorious in city council primary. Zanetta Everhart, whose son Zaire Goodman was shot in the 2022 racist attack, won in a landslide. This is written by Candace McDuffie. Zanetta Everhart, who spoke out about racism and gun violence after her son Zaire Goodman was shot in the 2022 Buffalo mass shooting at a Topps supermarket, was victorious in a Democratic primary Tuesday. Everhart has a history in politics and has previously been on the staff of state Democratic Senator Tim Kennedy for five years. Everhart defeated India Walton, another local activist who in 2021 challenged Buffalo Mayor Brian Brown, pardon me, that's Byron Brown, in a Democratic primary, but lost to him in the general election. CBS Buffalo affiliate WIB. VBTV reported that Everhart won in a landslide with 1,525 votes, which accounted for 66.68%. In her victory speech, she remarked, This is for y'all. This is for the community. This is for my community mamas. This is for everybody. I am truly, truly excited to just get ready to do the work. That's it. That's all this is about. This is about fixing our community and just showing people that there is hope. I don't want people to lose hope. Everhart and Walton competed for a seat on Buffalo's Common Council, representing an area that is still recovering from the white supremacist attack that killed 10 people one year ago. The victims who died hailed disproportionately from black neighborhoods. And Central Park Five member Youssef Salam is heading to the New York City Council. Youssef Salam, a member of the Exonerated Five, won the Harlem Democratic primary race. I'll just read excerpts from this since I covered it last week. Written by Jessica Washington. Posted on the 28th. Youssef Salam has not had a typical path to politics. At just 15 years old, Salam was convicted of a crime he didn't commit, one of the famous Central Park Five, and spent nearly seven years in prison before he was exonerated. Now he is poised to join the city council. On Tuesday night, Salam declared victory in the Democratic primary race to represent one of Harlem's districts on the city council. Salam faced off against two seasoned politicians, New York Assembly members Al Taylor and former Harlem City Council member Ines Dickens, and came out on top. Next article written by Candace McDuffie, still reading from TheRoot.com, Black Lives Matter Foundation fraud lawsuit from BLM Grassroots is dismissed. The lawsuit against the foundation stems from last summer. This was published on the 30th. A civil lawsuit brought by grassroots activists from around the United States against a foundation with stewardship of the Black Lives Matter movement's charitable endowment has been thrown out. Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Stephanie Bowick dismissed the suit, agreeing with the foundation's attorneys. 
A collective of organizers known as Black Lives Matter Grassroots Incorporated stated that Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation Incorporated had received donations stemming from the work of the city-based Black Lives Matter chapter. The group then claimed the foundation ultimately defrauded the public and left activists out of the decision-making process. Lawyers for the foundation pushed back and said that the BLM organizers did not prove that they were entitled to the money raised, nor did they prove allegations that the foundation's leaders used funds inappropriately. Part of the fraud claim was based on the infamous $6 million Cali mansion bought with donated funds. The foundation stated the property would be used for a black artist fellowship. Black Lives Matter chapter organizers say that claim is untrue. However, in a court order, Bowick said that the ac- pardon me, that the accusations of fraud were premised upon misrepresentation rather than concealment. The complaint fails to sufficiently allege the how, when, where, to whom, and by what means the representations were tendered. Co-founder of BLM Grassroots, Malina Abdullah, said that the collective was stunned and dismayed by the case's outcome. An attorney for the organizers confirmed that an appeal would be filed immediately. Abdullah expressed in a statement, As always, the work of Black Lives Matter continues, regardless of the court ruling. In a statement, the foundation expressed gratitude and urged unity, saying, The problems we face as a community are too great for us to be divided. The Foundation also emphasized the importance of their work despite allegations it has received. We have stayed true to our principles, philanthropic duties, and organizational focus despite countless blatant fabrications, misrepresentations, and innuendos of misdeeds lodged against us. Next, written by Jessica Washington, Inside the Fight to Close the Infamous Slavery Loophole. Democrats in Congress introduced the Abolition Amendment, but what does it actually do? This was published on the 26th. In school, children are taught that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States, but that's only half of the story. The 13th Amendment bans slavery and involuntary servitude, quote, except as a punishment for a crime. That infamous loophole, which is the subject of Ava DuVernay's film 13th, has allowed for the forced labor of millions of incarcerated people, a disproportionate number of whom are black, throughout the United States. But Senators Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, and Jeff Merkley, Democrat of Oregon, and Congresswoman Nikema Williams, Democrat of Georgia, have a plan to close that loophole. The three Democrats introduced the Abolition Amendment, which they say would close the slavery loophole. The joint resolution would amend the Constitution to say, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude may be imposed as a punishment for a crime. This loophole is at odds with our nation's foundational principles of liberty, justice, and equality for all of our people, said Senator Booker in a statement. He went on. 
It is time we pass the abolition amendment and finally end the morally reprehensible practice of slavery in this country. We must ensure that all people are treated with fairness and dignity to truly live up to our nation's promise. A report from the American Civil Liberties Union found that incarcerated workers generate $2 billion in goods and $9 billion in prison maintenance services. But on average, they are paid only 13 to 52 cents an hour, and many make nothing. In some cases, incarcerated people are forced to work dangerous jobs. For example, in California, they've been sent to the front lines to fight wildfires, but made significantly less than minimum wage. This push to end the 13th Amendment loophole isn't new. Seven states, including Alabama, Colorado, Nebraska, Oregon, Tennessee, Utah, and Vermont, have ratified the constitutional amendment to get rid of the slavery loophole. And these three legislators have introduced the resolution in previous years, always coinciding with Juneteenth, the holiday celebrating freedom from enslavement, Representative Williams, who replaced the late civil rights icon John Lewis, says she and her colleagues are committed to pushing this resolution until slavery is finally abolished. Slavery was wrong from day one, and we should have abolished it when the 13th Amendment was ratified, said Congresswoman Williams in a statement. I will keep pushing, no matter how long it takes, for Congress to close the slavery loophole in the Constitution finally ending slavery in America once and for all. People in states across the country are making their voices heard by voting to abolish slavery. We've waited long enough. The time to pass the abolition amendment is now. Next, written by Kaylin Womack, published on the 27th. Ralph Jarl, the teen who was shot after mistaking a man's house for the location of his siblings, spoke publicly for the first time since the incident. Ralph Jarl breaks his silence months after being shot for knocking on the wrong door. Ralph Jarl, the 16-year-old boy who was shot and injured after knocking on the wrong door, has spoken out for the first time since the incident. In an interview with ABC's Good Morning America, he gave chilling details of the events of the night of April 13th. Jarl was going to pick up his 11-year-old twin brothers when he accidentally confused the address for that of 84-year-old Andrew Lester. Jarl told GMA he walked up the driveway, walked up the stairs, and rang the doorbell noticing three security cameras. Jarl said he wasn't familiar with the friends his siblings were in the company of, so he thought, maybe this is their house. The teen recalled waiting a while on the porch and then suddenly hearing the door open and seeing Lester appear in the doorway. He assumed Lester was the friend's grandfather, still thinking his brothers were inside the house. However, before he could clarify, things took a drastic turn. And then he pulls out his gun, and I'm like, whoa, so I back up. He points it at me, so I kind of like brace myself, and I turn my head. Before that, I'm thinking, there's no way he's actually going to shoot, right? The door isn't even open. He's going to shoot through his glass door. Glass is going to get everywhere, he said. Then it happened. 
The following quote from ABC News. Jarl told Roberts that after he was shot, he was bleeding from his head and was surprised that he was as alert as he was. He said that his instincts took over and he went looking for help. But according to Jarl, he had to approach multiple homes after the first house he approached declined to help him and locked the door. So then I go to the next house across the street. No one answers. And the house to the right of that house. I go there and someone opens the door and tells me to wait for the police, he said. Jarl's mother, Cleo Nagbe, told Roberts that after her son didn't return from picking up his siblings, she was worried and drove around looking for him. Shortly after, she said she received a call from the police telling her that Ralph was shot. So she headed straight to the hospital. The last words Jarl heard before the trigger was pulled was, Don't come here ever again. Since the incident, the report says Jarl has been in therapy, recovering from the mental trauma of the incident. Though he and his family relocated, they still receive letters of support from strangers all around the country. As for justice, Jarl said Lester should be convicted for the crime he committed. The old man was charged with one count of felony assault in the first degree and one count of armed criminal action. His preliminary hearing is scheduled for August 31st. Now, a few articles on the recent Supreme Court actions. This one's written by Jessica Washington, published on the 30th. The Supreme Court kills Biden's student debt relief plan. In a 6-3 to three decision, the Supreme Court tanked Biden's student debt plan. Here's what that means for black student borrowers. The Supreme Court occasionally surprises us, but in this case, they did exactly what court watchers predicted. In a 6-3 to three decision, the Supreme Court ruled that Biden's student relief plan was unconstitutional. The decision is a massive loss for the millions of people holding federal student loan debt who were hoping for relief, the plan would have eliminated up to $20,000 in student debt for borrowers making under $125,000 or $250,000 of household income, depending. As expected, the ruling fell along the court's ideological divide. Liberal Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Katanji Brown-Jackson voted to uphold student debt relief, and the conservatives Chief Justice John Roberts, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Comey, pardon me, Amy Comey Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, Samuel Alito, and Clarence Thomas voted against it. As we mentioned, none of this came as a huge shock. Following oral arguments earlier this year, legal experts warned the route that things did not look great for Biden's student debt plan. At the time, Roberts suggested that this was an issue better left up to Congress, an argument the court maintained in their opinion. In the liberal justices' dissent, they argued that the decision was a massive overreach by the court. In every respect, the court exceeds its proper limited role in our nation's governance, wrote Kagan. Noting, as many legal experts have, that Congress passed the HEROES Act, which explicitly gave the president powers over federal student loans. It's important to note that this isn't just a political blow to Biden, it's also an economic hit to borrowers who had hoped to see some relief after toiling in debt for years. 
Black Americans will be especially impacted by this decision. According to the Student Borrower Protection Center, roughly 90% of black students take on student loan debt compared to 66% of white students. On average, black graduates actually owe 6% more on their student loans than when they borrowed the money due to interest. And white borrowers owe, on average, 10% less than what they borrowed. Thanks to a consistent gender wage gap, things are even worse for black women. On average, black women hold $38,000 in federal student loan debt, according to Education Education Trust. The decision leaves open the possibility for Congress to help borrowers. However, it's undeniably a blow to those suffering under mountains of debt. Next, written by Jessica Washington, still reading from TheRoot.com. Black politicians speak out on affirmative action decision fallout. Vice President Kamala Harris called the Supreme Court's ruling a denial of opportunity. This was published on the 30th. With the stroke of a pen on Thursday, the Supreme Court rolled back decades of work pushing equity in higher education. The court ruled that Harvard University and the University of North Carolina's race-conscious admissions policy were unconstitutional. In doing so, they they severely limited the use of race as a factor in college admissions. Despite being at Essence Fest when the news broke, Vice Vice President Kamala Harris responded swiftly to the ruling and said, The highest court in our land just made a decision today on affirmative action, and I feel compelled to speak, Harris told the crowd. This is now a moment when the court has not fully understood the importance of equal opportunity for the people of our country, and it is so many ways a denial of opportunity. However, Harris was far from the only black politician to respond. On Capitol Hill, the Black Caucus put out statements decrying the decision alongside the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Today's decision deals a needless blow to America's promise of equal and fair opportunity, they wrote. Newer faces to Congress, like Representative Summer Lee, took direct aim at the court, Make no mistake, the decision by this corrupt and illegitimate Supreme Court was designed to keep a generation of brilliant black young people out of higher education and positions of power, wrote Lee. Former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama also weighed in with personal sentiments as well as direct calls to action. Back in college, I was one of the few black students on my campus, and I was proud of getting into such a respected school. I knew I'd worked hard for it, wrote the former first lady, who attended Princeton University. But still, I sometimes wondered if people thought I got there because of affirmative action. Her sentiments echoed a feeling shared by many black graduates who attended highly selective colleges. But the fact is this, I belonged, she said, and semester after semester, decade after decade, for more than half a century, countless students like me showed they belonged too. In a tweet linking to his wife's statements along with organizations aimed at benefiting students of color, former President Barack Obama called for action. 
Affirmative action was never a complete answer in the drive towards a more just society. But for generations of students who had been systematically excluded from most of America's key institutions, it gave us the chance to show we more than deserved a seat at the table. In the wake of the Supreme Court's recent decision, it's time to redouble our efforts, he tweeted. However, there was perhaps no more poignant voice on the matter than Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who called the decision a tragedy for us all. The only way out of this morass for all of us is to stare at racial disparity unblinkingly and then do what evidence and experts tell us is required to level the playing field and march forward together, collectively striving to achieve true equality for all Americans, wrote Jackson in her blistering dissent. It is no small irony that the judgment of the majority hands down today will forestall the end of race-based disparities in this country. Making the colorblind world the majority wistfully touts much more difficult to accomplish. Moving to thegrio.com for more on this. This one written by Donna Brazil, posted June 29th. Supreme Court affirmative action decision hurts black students. Here's how colleges should respond. This is an opinion piece. Thursday's ruling, barring colleges from considering race in admissions, is a blow to black, Hispanic, and Native American high school students with great potential. Colleges need to find alternate ways to attract those students and commit to maintaining a diverse student population. The Supreme Court ruling Thursday, barring public and private colleges and universities from considering race when deciding which students to admit, strikes a terrible blow against striving black students and poses a grave challenge to efforts to increase campus diversity. The 6-3 ruling came in two cases challenging affirmative action admissions programs at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, that considered race as one of many factors in reaching admissions decisions. The High Court said race-conscious admissions are unconstitutional. The universities were sued by a group claiming affirmative action policies benefiting black, Hispanic, and Native American students discriminated against white and Asian American students. Harvard and UNC said quite correctly that such programs promote diversity that enhances the education of all students. Affirmative action also benefits society by broadening the pool of college graduates, enabling employers to take advantage of their talents and experiences. Black people make up about 14% of the U.S. population. However, the percentage of black students in highly selective colleges and universities that can help graduates land high-paying jobs is only 7.1%. It could plummet to just 2.1% without race-conscious affirmative action. 33 selective schools said in a written argument to the Supreme Court supporting Harvard and UNC. A drop in college enrollment would worsen the higher education gap already disadvantaging black Americans. 
The Census Bureau reported in 2021 that while some 61% of Asian Americans and almost 42% of non-Hispanic whites, 25 and older, held bachelor's degrees, the comparable figures fell to about 28% for blacks and 21% for Hispanics and 15% for Native Americans. The Supreme Court ruling could hurt many black, Hispanic, and Native American high school students with great potential for achievement unless schools find alternate ways of maintaining and preferably increasing diversity. Finding those alternate ways is vital. Affirmative action programs can benefit minority students even while ignoring race. By giving favorable consideration to obstacles college applicants have had to overcome, such as poverty and being first-generation college students. Colleges should now intensify efforts to attract more such students and help them succeed once enrolled. 1. Effective action public colleges and universities should take would be to pledge to admit top students from all high schools in the states where they are located. Texas successfully launched such a policy in 1998, guaranteeing college admission to the top 10% of graduates of every high school in that state. Students at high schools with large black and Hispanic enrollments benefited. Justice Clarence Thomas, one of two black members of the Supreme Court, said in a 1983 speech that he benefited from affirmative action. He received a scholarship set aside for racial minorities to attend Holy Cross College and was admitted to the Yale Law School in 1971 and given generous financial aid under an affirmative action program. Nevertheless, Thomas voted to strike down race-conscious affirmative action. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the other black member of the Supreme Court, voted to uphold race-conscious affirmative action at UNC, but recused herself from the Harvard case because she served on a university board there. In her dissent to the majority decision, Jackson wrote that, quote, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Opponents of race-conscious affirmative action programs fail to take into account the many historical and contemporary realities that justify such programs. For example, before the Civil War, southern states made it a crime to teach both enslaved and free black people to read and write, although some black people overcame those obstacles. When slavery ended in 1865, many newly freed black Americans had no education, no money, and no property. Besides facing the hardships of poverty and the systemic racism that continued to plague America, many black students attend schools in low-income neighborhoods. These schools are often poorly funded, have too few teachers, have substandard facilities and don't offer many advanced placement or international baccalaureate courses that impress college admissions officers. In addition, many low-income high school students, who are disproportionately black, must hold after-school and summer jobs to help support their families rather than participating in extracurricular activities, unpaid summer internships, and expensive summer enrichment programs that also stand out on college applications. 
On top of this, few black students have parents who graduated from selective colleges and universities and also donate money to such schools. Students, most of them white, with such parents, have long received preferential treatment and admissions to colleges that their parents attended. Higher education institutions launched affirmative action programs in the 1960s and 1970s to increase minority enrollment. Since then, affirmative action has become a key, in, pardon me, key component of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, initiatives designed to open the doors to the American dream for all Americans. In earlier years, affirmative action, although it wasn't called that, was in force for white students, barring most black students from admissions to predominantly white colleges and universities. Some colleges in the South refused to admit any black students as recently as the early 1960s. Fortunately, racism didn't keep black students from entering, pardon me, from earning college degrees thanks to the development of historically black colleges and universities. As someone who grew up in poverty at, as one of nine children of hard-working parents who couldn't afford to attend college themselves, I understand the importance of higher education. I graduated from Louisiana State University, and I want more black young people to benefit from a college education just as I did. I'm disheartened to see the Supreme Court making that dream harder to achieve. We must not let the Supreme Court turn back the clock on the growth of college enrollment by black Americans. That would amount to Jim Crow 2.0. The challenge that colleges face today is to keep the doors of higher education open to diverse student bodies, even without race-conscious affirmative action. They must meet this challenge. There is no justice in doing otherwise. At the bottom, a little bit about this author. Donna Brazil is a veteran political strategist, senior advisor at Purple Strategies, New York Times bestselling author, chair of the J. William Fulbright's Foreign Scholarship Board and sought-after Emmy and Peabody award-winning media contributor to such outlets as ABC News, USA Today, and The Griot. She previously served as interim chair of the Democratic National Committee and of the DNC's Voting Rights Institute. Donna was the first black American to serve as the manager of a major party presidential campaign, running the campaign of Vice President Al Gore in 2000. She serves as an adjunct professor in the Women and Gender Studies Department at Georgetown University and served as the King Endowed Chair in Public Policy at Howard University and as a fellow at the Institute of Politics at Harvard Kennedy School. She's lectured at nearly 250 colleges and universities on diversity, equity, inclusion, women in leadership, and restoring civility in American politics. Next, turning to the New York Times for the article on new museum opening in Charleston, a museum honors a journey of grief and grace. The International African American Museum in a former slave port is about more than slavery, it's about survival and resilience. This was written by Holland Cotter, posted June 23rd. 
Holland Cotter, the co-chief art critic, went to Charleston, South Carolina to explore the International African American Museum ahead of its opening. In Charleston Harbor, where the initiating shots of the Civil War were fired, Fort Sumter is distantly visible. I'm on the site of a former shipping pier known as Gadsden's Wharf. Here, in the 18th and early 19th centuries, ships carrying tens of thousands of enslaved Africans deposited their human cargo, a population that would, through unthinkable adversity and creative perseverance, utterly transform what America meant and means. On this spot now, looking a bit like a ship itself, stands the eagerly awaited and long-delayed New International African American Museum. After almost a quarter century journey, hampered by political squalls, economic doldrums, sometimes mutinous crews, and last-minute fogs, this cultural vessel has securely and handsomely come to birth here, opening to the public on Tuesday. The new museum is very much what this place is about, the original forced infusion of black cultural energy into America, and the consequences of that for the present. It's the first major new museum of African American history in the country to bring the whole Afro-Atlantic world, including Africa itself, fully into the picture. The museum's architecture, designed by Henry N. Cobb, with Kurt Moody of Moody Nolan, is responsive to the institution's complex global local agenda, a long horizontal block of sand beige brick raised high on stout pilings. It conjures the image of a boat in dry dock. But it also suggests a kind of Afrofuturist spacecraft hovering, set for liftoff. Beneath and around it is a public park that the museum has named the African Ancestors Memorial Garden. It's clearly conceived as a tribute to victims of the torturous Atlantic Ocean crossing, known as the Middle Passage, and specifically to those who arrived, dead or alive, at this very spot. Ghostly images, life-side silhouettes of bodies packed together, shoulder to shoulder, as if in a ship's hold, appear to be carved into the garden's pavement. Pavement, pardon me. Yet surrounding and softening this sepulchral frieze are signs of new life and growth in the form of plantings, designed by the landscape artist Walter J. Hood of lush vegetation, palm trees native to Africa, sweetgrass native to South Carolina. So even from the outside... This history museum, set in a former slave port, announces itself as being about something more than slavery. It's a monument to survival and continuance. It situates Gadsden's Wharf and Charleston on a wide map still being explored and expanded. But just inside the museum, a version of that map unfolds in the form of a kind of Ali of cantilevered video screens flashing images of Afro-Atlantic cultures past and present. The Great Mosque at Jinnah in Mali, the Door of No Return in Ghana, 
and contemporary street festivals in Baha'i, Port-au-Prince, and Brooklyn. Accompanied by an oceanic world music-style soundscape, the videos offer a sense-around soak in the vitality and variety of diaspora as the music envisions, pardon me, as the museum envisions it. And that view, as set out in a series of nine galleries, is alternately grand and granular. Two large, wide-open spaces labeled African Worlds and South Carolina Connections are geared to ambitiously scaled, loosely-themed multimedia displays, including a terrific globe-leaping video animation called Traveling Through Time by the artist Nate Lewis and an historically programmed touch-table map of the museum's home state. Several smaller galleries, densely installed with objects and texts, tend to be topic-specific, and a handful of cabinet-sized pocket displays are even more tightly focused. One, called American Journeys, is a chronological sequence of these mini-installations tracing the back Pardon me, the black story as it took place primarily in South Carolina, from plantation slavery through the Civil War and the Civil Rights era. There are no big surprises, but a familiar national narrative is refreshed and enlivened by being filtered through the regional lens. Rarely encountered is the kind of data found in a gallery called African Roots, where facing displays connect certain African art forms and spiritual practices with related ones in Latin America, Candomblé in Brazil, Santeria in Cuba, and Puerto Rico. And it is worth visiting the museum just to find a gallery devoted to the West African-sourced Gullah Gucci culture of the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida Atlantic coasts, evoked here in a full-scale chapel-like praise house and in a short poetic film commissioned by the museum from the Uma Chroma collection, directed by Julia Dash. Indeed, the sheer volume of new or unfamiliar information delivered by the museum's displays is exhilarating. At the same time, the brutal, racist realities that fueled the Afro-Atlantic dispersal is never far from view. In South Carolina Connections, Charleston's catalytic role in the slave trade is made plain. Parentheses, five years ago, the city issued a formal apology for the part it played in this shameful enterprise. In a gallery titled Carolina Gold, we learn how rice cultivation, the state's first boom industry, the one that created a rich white plantation aristocracy, arrived here with enslaved West Africans and flourished through their bracket pardon me, back-breaking labor. Historical timelines deliver chilling reports from the past. Some news is good. A list of international revolutionary movements in which African-descendant people participated during the 18th and 19th centuries is long. But a list of episodes of anti-black violence in the early 20th century in the United States is even longer. Charleston is on that list more than once and would be again in an update. The museum's opening comes just 10 days after the anniversary of the 2015 fatal shooting by a white supremacist of nine black members of Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, Mother Emmanuel. 
you can see its steeple from the museum. Evident throughout the museum is an effort to balance negative and positive historical perspectives, to form an identity around the very idea of balance in an unstable nation and world. The decision to go this route can't have been easy, given the building's siting. It would seem natural to create a more polemical institution, a museum about slavery, like the Legacy Museum, from enslavement to mass incarceration, which is in Montgomery, Alabama. Debate over this, adamant, often rancorous, was surely an early contributing factor in the project's long-delayed 23-year realization Other roadblocks included financial foot-dragging on the part of both city and state governments and standoffishness on the part of some private donors. There were departures, friendly or otherwise, of board members and museum staff. And finally, last year, close to the finish line, the failure of the building's climate system, creating a serious humidity problem. At least one person reports seeing mist in the galleries, Potentially damaging to art and artifacts, it required a six-month delay in the opening, which was scheduled for last January. A model the museum should not pursue is one set by a temporary traveling show organized by the Smithsonian Institution on view in its special exhibition gallery through August 6th. Boomingly titled, Men of Change, Power, Triumph, Truth, It's a shout-out to two dozen black male celebrities from politics, sports, and the arts. It's a pumped-up Hall of Fame affair of a kind that's been done and done and doesn't need doing anymore. Yet it does have a saving grace. Its subjects are depicted not just in heroizing photographs, but in portraits, widely varied in concept and style commissioned by the Smithsonian from young contemporary black artists, some already known, others well worth keeping an eye on. The Charleston Museum, I'm happy to see, is already on the job. Almost all of its inaugural displays, as well as the garden below, incorporate contemporary art. Much of the work is from a still young, permanent collection that the museum seems interested in expanding, and that should certainly include Charleston-based artists. If anything will keep its institutional thinking critical and flexible, that will. History museums are hard to build and can be hard to love. The Charleston Museum's notion of balance will not please everyone. But if such a museum expands the perimeters, pardon me, the parameters of history, and this one does, then that's a lot which I guess is why I ended up on a visit awarding it my sincerest accolade. At closing time, I didn't want to leave. And next, some articles and excerpts from articles on the reparations actions happening currently. This first from AP Press, written by Sophie Austin and Janie Haar, published the 28th. I'll just read excerpts. Dateline, Sacramento, California. Members of California's Black Reparations Task Force handed off their historic two-year report to state lawmakers Thursday, beginning the next chapter in the long struggle to compensate the descendants of slavery. The first U.S. panel of its kind met one last time Thursday, urging supporters to press lawmakers into action on more than 100 recommendations, 
State legislators and Governor Gavin Newsom must agree for any money to be paid or for any policy changes to be adopted. Following that basic news, an article from the Wall Street Journal, Thursday, uh, Friday edition, the 30th, written by Jason L. Riley for his Upward Mobility section, The Trouble with Reparations for Redlining, he says. Following California's lead, lawmakers in New York have passed a bill to create a reparations task force to study the lingering effects of slavery. New Jersey and Vermont are among states considering similar measures. It's too early to tell if or how any restitution would play out. Neither Governor Gavin Newsom of California nor Governor Kathy Hochul of New York has endorsed reparations payments, but a suburb of Chicago may offer some clues. Two years ago, Evanston, Illinois, became the first municipality in the country to make restitution pardon me, reparations available to black residents. The city council voted to distribute grants of $25,000 each to qualifying black households for home repairs, down payments on property, and other housing costs. Blacks who lived in Evanston between 1919 and 1969 and their direct descendants are eligible. The city has promised to spend up to $10 million over the next decade, and... CNN reported in March that 650 residents so far had applied. Don't be surprised if Evanston becomes a template for similar schemes. Proponents of reparations cite past housing discrimination as a primary driver of today's racial wealth gap. The National Housing Act of 1934 established the Federal Housing Administration to, quote, facilitate sound home financing on reasonable terms. Prior to the 1930s, people usually paid cash for homes. When homes were financed, down payments of at least 30% were often required, which few could afford. The new law was intended to guarantee private mortgages and make them more widely accessible. The effort was remarkably successful, and the effects were almost immediate. Builders went back to work, and housing starts and sales began to accelerate rapidly in 1936, wrote historian Kenneth Jackson in a definitive study called Crabgrass Frontier, the Suburbanization of the United States. There were 93,000 housing starts in 1933. By 1941, the figure had risen 566% to 619,000, and by the end of 1972, F. H.A. had helped nearly 11 million families to own homes and another 22 million families to improve their properties, wrote Mr. Jackson. And in those same years, between 34 and 72, the percentage of American families living in home, pardon me, in ownership, pardon me again, in owner-occupied dwellings rose from 44% to 63%. Officially, the F.H.A. legislation had no discriminatory intent. Nevertheless, the new programs were implemented in ways that led to dramatic racial disparities. In determining which residences to ensure, the agency instructed underwriters to consider, among other things, a community's economic stability and its protection from adverse influences. 
This resulted in a practice known as redlining, in which banks declared entire neighborhoods ineligible for FHA loans. The upshot, Mr. Jackson pointed out, is that FHA helped to turn the building industry, quote, against the minority and inner-city housing market, and to promote the income and racial segregation of suburbia. Given this history, it's easy to understand why proponents of reparations are quick to cite redlining as a justification. California's task force noted the state's, quote, willing complicity in federal redlining policies as a clear case of state-sanctioned housing discrimination. Sponsors of the New York legislation cited the state's history of segregation, housing discrimination, and redlining. Tanahasi Coates's 2014 article in the Atlantic magazine, which reignited this debate, is titled The Case for Reparations. That case is largely based on housing discrimination in the Jim Crow era. Redlining went beyond FHA-backed loans and spread to the entire mortgage industry, he wrote, which was already rife with racism, excluding black people from most legitimate means of obtaining a mortgage. Nevertheless, the argument that discriminatory housing policies kept blacks from acquiring more wealth and entitles them to reparations isn't a particularly strong one. Mr. Coates asserts that government's housing policies, quote, engineered the wealth gap that exists today. The historical reality is that notwithstanding the difficulties blacks faced in obtaining mortgages in the post-war period, Home ownership among blacks was rising faster than it was among whites. Research by economists William J. Collins and Robert A. Margo shows that between 1940 and 1980, home ownership rates climbed by 37 percentage points for blacks and 34 percentage points for whites. If home ownership builds wealth, this was a period of extraordinary gains for blacks. But there is a more fundamental problem with linking reparations to past redlining policies. While a higher percentage of the black population lived in redlined areas, most residents of neighborhoods where the FHA refused to insure mortgages weren't black, according to a 2021 National Bureau of Economic Research study by Price Fishbeck, Jessica Lavoie, Allison Scherzer, and Randall Walsh. In our sample, over 95% of black homeowners lived in the lowest-rated D zones, they found. They went on, yet the vast majority, 92% of the total redlined homeowning population, was white. If being a victim of redlining is a qualification for reparations, what is the argument for excluding whites? And I just have time for excerpts from the final article on this topic. I might be able to finish this in the following week. This is written by Wayne Washington. We're at theroot.com. Why reparations owed to black people could be too massive for cash payouts. The writer tries to compute how much is a life of enslavement worth in today's dollars. This was published on the 21st. I'll take my reparation payment in the form of Boone Hall Plantation, please. Boone Hall is a sprawling plantation, pardon me, plantation located in Charleston County, South Carolina. Today, 
It offers tours so the curious can get a glimpse of what it was like during antebellum days when black people were enslaved and white people got richer than Midas from their free labor. The place is so scenic Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively got married there. Not sure how they didn't know about the beatings and rapes that likely took place there during slavery, but they have since said they're very, very sorry for using a place of horror as a wedding venue. I grew up not far from Boone Hall, and it's likely my ancestors on my father's side of the family were enslaved there. I'd like the current owners of the plantation to give it to me. After all, how much would it have been worth without the back-breaking labor of my ancestors? I figure I'd just throw my pitch out for Boone Hall because there are murmurs in the country about trying to find a way to make reparations for that bad slavery thing. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll save uh, this for another time to finish it off. Thank you for, for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the Anxious Foundation. Strengthening individuals and communities to improve the quality of lives. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.